Hello and welcome back to Back to the Books with Isabel Flynn and Kieran Sanger. A podcast where two millennials discuss their recent reading, new releases and current literary happenings. So just keep watching. Oh, no, nope. listening, listening. No. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to Back to the Books. My name is Isabel and I'm joined, as usual, by my very good friend, Kieran. Hello. Hello, Isabel. How are you today? I'm inside. (laughs) What a mood. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, uh, literally, I'm in my room, on my bed, looking out the window and I'm like, sunshine? It's a thing? What? I know, I know. Oh, sad day, sad day. But it's okay, because we're on our third episode of Back to the Books. How are you feeling? You enjoying it? Yeah, do you know what? I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, It's been lovely getting people enjoying it and getting in touch and people enjoy us wittering on about books. Who would have thought it? I know, I know. But I really like doing it and... It's just really fun to give myself a bit of a project because we're all stuck inside. There's not much else for anyone to do. And the fact that people are tuning in every week, downloading it on their government approved walk or run to listen to, it's quite nice. And yeah, it just makes me feel happy and it makes me feel less worried and sad about everything that's going on right now. So thumbs up all round yeah it's definitely been a good project for us and it it really means a lot that um we've had a really good response so far Mm. i think we've just passed 420 downloads blazing (laughs) that was a stoner reference yes it was um across our our first two episodes so thank you very much if you've been listening and downloading so far it means a huge amount to us um and i just want to take this quick minute to say that if you you do enjoy and you'd like to support us um we'd really encourage you to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice um leave us a rating or review at this early stage it really helps a podcast get off the ground um so yeah we'll stop panhandling now and we'll get into the books are you ready are you ready are you ready yes okay so i'm gonna kick things off this week with a book i read last week and literally only finished two days ago And it's a book called Any Other Mouth by Annalise McIntosh. First off, I do have to thank my friends Jamie and his boyfriend Tom as they actually recommended this book to me and very kindly sent me a copy in the post. So thank you guys for that. And this is a collection of short stories that almost tell a tale of the protagonist's journey from childhood to her teenage years to university to adulthood and they're all based on formative experiences growing up but they're reimagined as these short stories but they also have this playful almost fairy tale like quality to them oh interesting the book starts off with a disclaimer from the get-go saying 68 percent of these events actually happened 32 percent is made up And I'll never tell you what is what, so what's real and what's made up. So by kicking things off like that, she's saying it's up to you to decide what is fact and what is fiction because you'll never reveal it. And the stories go from being quite funny, very darkly funny, to being really, really sad, talking about grief and then also really 
nasty things like abuse, death, and the mixture of fact and fiction for me was the author deflecting any attention from her sort of saying I don't want this attention I don't want to think about how sad my life is at the moment so I'm going to deflect using this style because the author isn't mentioned by name in the book she uses a character called Gretchen but it's quite obviously her that's going through these things who studies English lit at university questions about whether that she should do a master's or not and goes the really tough strenuous relationship with her sister who's very mentally unwell loses her dad very much cuts herself off from her mother goes through a really bad spiral of sleeping with a lot of men and having a lot of sex it sounds like very very full-on but the stories are interwoven with this sense of humour that's quite dark and might be a bit too much for some. But it reminded me a lot of Fleabag. I don't know if you've seen Fleabag at all, Isabel. I've seen like bits and pieces. I think I've seen the first couple of episodes and I have kind of seen it in chunks. So I, I know what it's about and I know the kind of the general gist. Yeah. So, yeah. so in quickly for those that might not have seen Fleabag it's a show that was based on a play by Phoebe Waller-Bridge where we follow Fleabag that's her given name she actually isn't named in the show but she's just referred to in the screenplay as Fleabag trying to navigate her 20s by having sex and breaking the fourth wall of the show to talk to us as we're her friends but she does that because she's deflecting from the tragedy of her own life from the things that she's done and I think this book does the exact same thing it's very much what the writer is allowing us to see and by complicating it further by not saying which is real and which isn't it just makes us feel that it's almost our prerogative to figure out what's going on and what we believe and what we don't believe, you know, of this is real, this isn't, I'm not going to tell you, so you've got to do the hard work. Yeah, that is interesting. I think also it kind of, it plays a little bit with reader expectations, I imagine, because there's kind of a, a desperation to, especially when someone's been through like traumatic experiences or has had like difficulty in their lives, we we kind of want to kind of know all about it and have this sort of voyeuristic fascination. So I think the mm. idea that the authors created this idea that, some of these issues happened and some of them actually haven't kind of plays with the the reader's need to kind of sort out the fact from the fiction you know and, and it, it kind of asks the question like why do you need to know what's true like why do you need to know what I've actually been through I think that's really interesting I think when we know if something's one or the other it almost grounds us and makes us feel comfortable because we know what to expect whereas we have to put the work in because this author is saying you have to work for this. Yeah, definitely. You you know, here's your assignment, go. You've got to figure out what's real and what isn't. And you're reading the stories like, oh my God, this happened, but this happened. <laughs> and sometimes you laugh at the audacity of what goes on. Like there are some really funny stories about horror housemates at university, which I think we can all relate to. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Then from that, it'll go so quickly into something really harrowing and tragic and then it'll go back to that dark humour, funny anecdote. And it kind of throws you off your guard. So you almost, you're scared about living vicariously through this person. And kind of like Fleabag, she allows you in so much to see what 
is going on but then there are some instances where she's like no I'm not going to show you that yet because I'm, I'm I'm not ready and I think Annalise McIntosh does the same thing by holding off the really harrowing stuff until like maybe the last third of the book because it's then it's her decision of saying I'm gonna now show you these parts of my life but again by using a character called Gretchen never actually using her own name so is it chronological like completely or does it kind of go back and fill in the gaps um it's kind of like fractured memory so it's mainly chronological but then occasionally it might go back and I mean this isn't really a spoiler because it's got it on the blurb on the back of the book but the father dies and there are stories set before during and after his death and sometimes they are mixed around but for the most part it's fairly chronological okay but because each story has like a title as well you could read them in any order and you'd still get a gist of what's happened but i just really love the idea of what happens when you get a book where fact and fiction are combined but when you finish reading it how do you feel do you feel like cheated do you feel like you've earned that book because you've put the work in I don't know. It might just be me, but that was the enjoyment I got out of it as well. Yeah, I, I do get that. I think there's, like I was saying, like there's an awful lot of desperate, especially when somebody writes about hard-hitting topics, um, people kind of want people to come in like with their receipts and their mm. credentials. Like, oh, you're going to write about this topic. Have you actually experienced it? Did you experience it enough? Um, uh, did you experience it in a way that fits with the narrative that we want to tell? Mm. Um, and so I, I do like the idea that this person was just like, hey, maybe this happened, maybe it didn't, but, you know, I'm going to tell it anyway and maybe you should just deal with it. Yeah, completely. And we almost have to put our trust in her as well. Yeah. That there is some fact there. So we do have to almost take it all as fact, even though some of it's made up, because we don't know which is which. We almost Mm. have to trust the author more. And there's a quote here that's on the back of the book. Um... And it's her talking about grief, but how it's linked to her menstrual cycle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the quote is, when I was least expecting it, the grief started leaking out. The first place it leaked was in my knickers and I had to to take a spare pair of pants to work. Then the leaking got worse. And that's in the first or second story, I think. That is cool, yeah, because you hear a lot about how grief is like a bodily process mm. and that sometimes your your brain isn't quite matched up to whatever your body's doing. So I like it a lot like kind of when you're younger and uh, <laughs> when you're younger and you start your menstrual cycle, you're like, my body has no idea what it's doing. Mm. Oh, my God, it's acting without my consent. Yeah. Yeah. And I quite like it taking a form almost. Yeah. Like it's never explicitly said is you know it's her period it's just hinted at and i'm not i just think it's very really very clever to give a form to her grief and she does that a lot throughout the book but again it's a deflection yeah it's kind of like to what extent is this metaphor highlighting and and truly like like to what extent is this metaphor hiding what i'm saying and to what extent is this metaphor kind of truly revealing what I'm saying. And I guess it's like the double-edged sword of metaphors in literature. They both kind of exacerbate and hide what you're talking about. So that's cool. And this was the first book I finished in a while because 
I don't know about you, but I have been struggling to read over the last few weeks with everything going on. My brain just feels really frazzled. But this was a really intense book yeah. to get through. I read maybe 30 or 40 pages a night. I absolutely loved the book. I keep saying it, but I just feel like if Fleabag had written a novel, this would be it. And I think this came out in 2014 or 2013. So it was just before Fleabag became a massive success. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's funny, it's crass, but never too much. Yeah, it's also really gut-wrenching and stupendously frank. From that, I do think it's probably one of the best things I've read so far this year. Oh, cool. I am going to now review The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. Um, and just a preface, I never normally read nonfiction. Um, and this has definitely convinced me that I should read more. So that's a good review for you, starting off. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Episode's over. You can all go home now. Yep. <laughs> right, there we go. See you, everyone. Next. Um, I had this both on Audible and I had the hard copy. And I will say the two made like a really good combination um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of material in the book. Um, but the the audio was a really great narration. And then I would often go back to the, the book to kind of look at the sources and things like that. Um, so what mm. is the book about? I hear you ask. <laughs> So it's it's the story of the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, and it's divided into five sections, each dedicated to one woman. So the women are Mary Ann Nichols, who was usually went by Polly, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. And each section goes over their lives in detail and seeks to create these uh, fleshed out lives and personalities and agency for women who are kind of famous only as corpses. Um, and honestly, it's like a really strongly written big ass fuck you <laughs> to all the misogyny involved in sensationalizing serial killers like Jack the Ripper. Um, it shows how it, the narrative that he killed prostitutes has created this like sick fascination and even a moral admiration. Ugh. So, Ooh, dear. yeah, right at the start, Hallie Rubenhold shows how the police use the fact that with the exception of the last, each woman was killed outside in dark corners at night while lying down. And they used this as evidence that they had been prostitutes and that the killer had lured them there on the pretense of paying for sex. And Hallie Rubenhold points out how stupid and gross this is mm. and, and wrong as well. You know, we build Jack the Ripper into this sexualized predator of immoral women when all the evidence points to is that Jack the Ripper was like a pathetic little shit who snuck up on homeless women while they were sleeping. Not much less exciting, much less impressive. Oh, so good. <laughs> no, I just didn't expect you to come out with that. But like you say, though, it's just debunking those myths. Like if you were to ask a handful of people about Jack the Ripper and the victims, most likely they wouldn't be able to name any of them. And they would most likely assume they were prostitutes. Exactly. And even if you watch like serials or sketch shows or anything that kind of parodies that the women are always nine times out of ten made out to be prostitutes or just drunk and kind of just caricatures of women yeah, yeah. rather than real people definitely and it's kind of un uncomfortable when you walk around london as well and you see how much like jack the ripper stuff there is you know you can go on mm. tours visiting places where like five women were killed and i'm like that's really gross and like don't get me wrong mm. i get the fascination with serial killers but i 
I think it's it's a really interesting and kind of gruesome thing to remember that Jack the Ripper has had lots of copycats over the years and they went out and killed mm. prostitutes and there is absolutely no evidence that most of these women were prostitutes. So basically mm. those women, the, the more recent victims died because of media and police frenzy that I'll, I'll kind of explain in a second. Um, so mm. yeah, as I said, like the kicker about this book is that Jack the Ripper is supposed to have killed sex workers. We only have evidence that one of these women was a career sex worker at the time of her murder. And we have evidence that another was involved in the sex trade in her past. But with the other three, we have no evidence whatsoever that they ever performed sex work, Let much less would have identified themselves as prostitutes. Um, mm. The police kept trying to link the women to sex work because it fed into their preconceptions about the murderer. And obviously the media always love their women, you know, in the centre of the Venn diagram of sexualized and dead. So mm. it whipped up these baseless theories until they became the cultural truth that we still have today. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the the it's it's a really great book. It's accessible, it's engaging, and it, it works really hard to give back these women their true identities. Mm. You know, they they stop being just nameless mangled corpses. They were all women who'd lived entire lives before they found themselves alone at night in Whitechapel, you know. These victims are put into wrong place, wrong time, and I find it fascinating just as over history has gone on and like you say Jack the Ripper becomes serialised and romanticised almost. You know, you can buy T-shirts and maps with Jack the Ripper paraphernalia on it. Yeah, right? Like, ugh. Yeah, gross. But there's nothing about these victims because they are just written off because it fits a, a preconceived narrative about women. Yeah, and, and also whose death we mourn. It's a kind of slightly Judith Butler bodies of war thing, you know, mm. like who whose deaths actually matter and it's like not prostitutes no exactly it's like they're they're written off before yeah. even you've had time to think it's like oh prostitutes nah, fine we can almost like it's like the lowest of the low of society yeah it's the people who are sort of expected to die so it's like well, you know yeah even now though like attitudes towards sex workers there is still that like stigma and that sort of they're at the bottom of society so if they were to go missing like society doesn't care when actually it's not like that at all like these people still have identities they still have families some still have children there's so much more to the story than just that title of this or that yeah yeah exactly and i think um uh the book never although the book makes the big point that like these women weren't prostitutes it's never they weren't prostitutes they were actually good women it's that mm. <laughs> just because they were just because some of them were prostitutes doesn't make them any more deserving of a gruesome death you know it, yeah. it is a very sex worker positive look mm. at arguing that these women weren't sex workers which i appreciated i i was a little bit nervous going in that it would be this big old thing about how like they weren't really prostitutes actually they were wonderful educated women and you're like ugh um, but yeah, so I, I don't want to go too into detail about each woman because for me reading it, the process of discovery was what made the five so rewarding. You know, it's mm. the learning about their lives and learning how complicated and interesting each of them were, you know, their their different kind of personalities and, and their experiences um, was so amazing. And I, I don't mind admitting that while reading the audiobook, I had to wipe tears out of my eyes while sat at a train platform. A bit embarrassing. I remember you telling me this when we met up in London before lockdown. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you saying how um, you were on the tube and 
listening to the audiobook and there was a certain part and you just started to well up and from that moment on I was like okay I need to read this book and I do believe that I'll have a free credit on Audible soon so awesome awesome that that may be my next audio book of choice yeah the the audiobook is really good I was so impressed by how um how the woman kind of went about uh, kind of giving each woman a different sort of feel and tone without ever coming across as kind of sporadic or unprofessional and yeah it also while I'm here the, the acts as a really wonderful insight into like the culture and the values of Victorian society um, I know mm. in our last episode we spoke a lot about that kind of cagedness of women in the home in the 19th mm. century and in kind of Victorian yeah. period and this book really digs into like the ramifications of that into you know we the Victorian society had such a strict ideal of like the idealized woman figure um, and there were real world implications on the women actually living at the time and um, what Reuben Hold shows is that Jack the Ripper might have finished them off but what really killed each of these women was a Victorian society that gave women no option but to be attached to a man and equated manlessness and homelessness with fallen virtue and immorality how nice of them um, oh, God. so yeah and, and the assumption in Victorian society was that if you were not a married woman keeping house for your husband and producing children you were a failure mm. and that the five looks at how these women faced domestic violence, poverty, addiction, human trafficking, and shows how each of these women could have led a completely different life if she hadn't been stuck in a society that never allowed a woman to pick herself back up mm. after falling on hard times. Yeah. Yeah, and more than that, actually, Reuben Hold shows how the women themselves bought into these stupid ideas and often ended up with dangerous or abusive partners because their whole purpose in life was that of support role to a male partner you know mm. it, it never pretends that the victims of this society you know somehow operate outside of its value systems if anything it shows how this desperation to cling to the ideal of being a good woman um compounded some of these women's lives even further and and, and dragged them right into the path of some creepy little shit cutting up homeless women as they tried to sleep you know mm. that we have now turned into something special yeah i'm not cross i'm just it's a good book read it <laughs> <laughs> no but i think you it, you're entitled to be cross though because it's it's frustrating because there are elements of that that still go on today when you look at the media and the the sensationalist headlines made about women it was you know how many years was it before page three from the sun had to sort of disappear yeah it, yeah. it was still recent years ago of how women are objectified and they only make good headlines when they're either wearing next to nothing. Naked or dead. Yeah, li yeah. literally naked or dead or angry. Naked, dead or both, yeah. And actually at the time, obviously the media were whipping it up into a frenzy. They were making this uh, a huge deal out of it. You know, it was in all the papers. And there was one guy whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head, but I will put in the show notes below, who wrote um, a letter to a newspaper and he was from a very affluent area near Whitechapel. And he wrote a letter to a newspaper saying it was appalling that these women were being killed. Um, he was utterly devastated. He was horrified, not because it mattered to him that the women were being killed, but because it might be driving other sex workers and working class women into his neighbourhood and making it so that he was going to have to deal with them. So just let that sink in, everyone. Oh, God. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, oh, it's, that's disgusting. Uh, as I said in the uh, in the last episode, the patriarchy at it again. Oh my god! Lit so my next book that I've recently read is a young adult novel 
called Wranglestone by Darren Charlton. And this got my attention firstly through Twitter because the author of the book randomly followed me and I had no idea who he was or what kind of books he wrote. So I went onto his profile and there it was, Wranglestone, billed as a queer love story with the backdrop of a zombie apocalypse. And I was like, oh my God. Oh, tick. <laughs> yeah, literally all the boxes ticked. It follows this, uh, th- we think it's in America somewhere, it's never really specified, but there's been a zombie apocalypse and there's this community living um, at an old abandoned camp called Camp Wranglestone. And they all sort of live amongst the camp on the lake and it's built like a safe haven because their dead can't swim so they have to almost cross the lake to get to them but because obviously they can't swim they're safe for now oh that's nice but as the novel opens the lake is starting to freeze because it's getting colder so the dead can walk across it meaning they can get to this community and eat them all which isn't nice oh lovely on top of that we follow this character called peter who's maybe like 16, 17. He feels like he's a bit of an outsider. Like he's never really appreciated by the community because he's deemed worthless. He doesn't really have a skill or talent that's useful to them in this time. You know, the community values practicality and grit in the face of hardship. And Peter's like, oh, I don't have that. Sorry, but I can knit. Um, (laughs) I'd take a jumper off him. Yeah, exactly. I'll have one cardigan, please. Gets chilly now and again. But he gets compared a lot to another boy called Cooper, who he's kind of watched from afar on his boat, who's this, like, handsome, like, strapping young chap who, you know, can go and hunt. He can collect wood. He's, like, valued quite highly in the community. And they have a little thing for each other, which is really, really cute. And they go off on this quest to find out more about where they're staying and the secrets that Camp Wranglestone hides. First thing I've got to say about it is it's a really cute, really easy read because before I'd read quite a lot of heavy stuff and my brain just felt emotionally battered and I thought I just need something nice, easy, I can get through it, I don't really have to think too hard but I want to be sort of taken away, a nice bit of escapism Yeah. and this book just does that in paramount because obviously you've got a super cute queer love story between the boys but it's so well written in terms of how visceral it is and how atmospheric the book is it reminded me a lot of the walking dead slash the last of us which is a um, really popular game which i love in terms of balancing the horror and the gore of the zombies but also these really close to home emotional moments between people and kind of how humanity can still survive and how we let our emotions flourish no matter what goes on i just really liked the blending of the two and especially because it's a young adult novel i don't know about you but sometimes young adult books annoy me because it's just teenagers whining like oh i'm so different oh i'm so different why does no one understand what it's like to be me (laughs) But at the same time, I'm so aware that that was me as a teenager. And so I'm there judging basically reflections of myself. I'm like, well, this is uncomfortable. But yeah. This is me. I was most likely the same as well. But 
this just breathes new life into the genre. Ironic for a zombie novel. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Thank you. Why didn't I think of that? God damn it. Um, but yeah, it does breathe new life into the genre because rather than the focus being like Peter knowing he's gay, but he doesn't know how to come out or he's struggling with his feelings. It's never a thing. Like both parents of Peter and Cooper are aware that they're gay but it just isn't made a thing it's just it is allowed to just be and when they realize that cooper and peter are an item it's like oh that's cute you do you like there's no sort of oh well because it's america and it's all we're all shooting things and we've all got plaid shirts on and we're chewing (laughs) gum and any other ridiculous tropes that i can think of you'd almost expect it to be the complete opposite but because it's not and it's flipped on its head, it just, it's really refreshing. There's no struggle. Like there's that argument with films that focus on queerness or queer characters that it's steeped in misery. It's always the trauma, isn't it? Yeah, the sort of the miserable life of being gay or dealing with queerness. I think a good one to go back to is A Little Life, which is one of my favourites, but good God, that's so... (laughs) intense but yeah i liked how this just ignored that completely and thought no we're just gonna have these two boys that love each other and they're allowed to just be and that is that and they're gonna go on this really cute heroic action adventure but also have some really creepy elements with the zombies and there were times where i felt really on edge because i didn't know what was going to happen next or the way certain scenes were described or depicted were really well done and really well executed and yeah i mean i've not read a young adult book in a long long time but it was definitely needed really cute and really really fluffy and just really easy to read as well really really got me back into that love of reading nice yeah i really like the idea that you know uh, as as you said um that it's kind of a balancing act between depicting the truth of the the struggles of the queer experience, but also sometimes just letting people be together and having it be nice and depi- letting people see like happy ever after. And I do really love the idea that finally in a zombie apocalypse film, everyone has bigger things to worry about than like whether two people are gay. Yeah, exactly. It's like the priorities are, oh shit, we could die because there's a zombie right outside rather than like, oh, well, I don't know, like, I'm okay with it, but, you know, your mum might not be. Like, yeah, yeah. Trying to use that whole thing of, no, no, it's cool. I know a gay person, so I'm cool, I'm hip. But I like that because I thought this, if this story was with a boy and a girl, again, it wouldn't be a thing of their relationship. They would just be allowed to just carry on and exist and yeah. it's that same approach and that same sort of perspective of they're allowed to just be and do what they need to do and there's a few twists and turns in the book which i didn't expect as well like a few people go missing Ooh. things get subverted you find out a lot of secrets that uh, where the camp has started out from very much like an episode of The Walking Dead, which I did start with, but I gave up after like series 206 or whatever it's on now. Um, <laughs> yeah, eventually the, the zombies are so boring. It's like, yeah, oh. like how much further can you go? But again, that's the point of The Walking Dead. I think the creator of the comic said the point is that it never ends because 
you watch a zombie film and it ends and you kind of think well what would happen next like yeah. it's not gonna wrap itself up in a neat bow and be like they all lived happily ever after with the yeah. zombies but yeah i definitely would recommend this for people who just want a really light easy read who like a bit of zombies in their books but also a bit of horror as well and obviously just a really cute queer love story which i think we could all appreciate now and again so yeah i thoroughly recommend so now i'm yeah going from some uh, lovely fluffy light stuff to something maybe a little bit more challenging but still worth it i promise i am going to talk about patience by toby litt um so patience is published by galley beggar press who are probably most known for your favorite book of last year kieran duck's new report yes. Yes, yes yeah i'm so glad you got to mention that yeah uh, eventually maybe i'll read it and we'll do a uh, a, a joint review someday but not anytime soon so don't get excited for it i was gonna say if you've got a spare day or th- six to read in a thousand page book where it's one long continuous sentence go for it the pace i'm reading now i'd need a spare year um but yeah <laughs> but however they've written some other really good stuff too so you know always worth checking out a small publisher beyond their kind of flagship publications Um, absolutely yes so patience is the story of elliot and elliot is without doubt one of the sweetest and most likable protagonists i've ever come across he's warm and funny and charming but he's also um, a young man i think a sort of very young teenager in an orphanage in the 1970s um, with a condition that though it's never actually named seems to describe cerebral palsy um, Mm. living in a wheelchair and unable to communicate verbally through speech Um, The story takes place entirely from his perspective and it's written years later when technology and and medical advances have allowed him to be, in his words, unlocked. But when we meet Elliot in the story, he's sort of just wasting away in this orphanage. Uh, It's run by nuns who are quite well-meaning but often don't have time for a quiet boy who can't get into any trouble because they're too busy chasing around the other uh, children who are often um, difficult or or in some way uh, Mm. damaged. Um, so he spends a lot of time just parked in front of a white ball for like hours at a time, um, unable to communicate his need for stimulation and his ability to think and comprehend the world as he does. Um, and then one day a new boy arrives called Jim and Jim is blind and deaf. But Elliot can see straight away that he has a rebellious spirit and might just present Elliot with a chance to escape the orphanage for a few hours and enjoy a bit of freedom. But the challenge, of course, and the crux of the novel is how a kid who can't move or speak is going to communicate with a kid who can't see or hear. Um, mm. So I would describe patience if I had to give it like a single line as one flew over the cuckoo's nest meets little rascals, maybe meets the great escape. Um, <laughs> that That's a very, very good summary in a sentence, I have to say. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a real, it's a real melting pot of ideas, but it really works. And, um, it's funny because it's such a rich and layered story. It's it's kind of a fun kids' adventure, um, full of daring and, and friendship. At the same time, it's this really lovely meditation on loneliness and isolation and disability. Um, it touches on that pain of feeling not wanted, the frustration of being lucid but unable to communicate. But at the same time, it all takes place largely in a single corridor with a very small cast of characters. And the story is told by someone who cannot relate events in a way that the reader is used to. So there's a lot going mm. on. There's a lot of big complicated themes taking place in what is really a very very simple story um which is ultimately kind of the the overlying message of the book is that something may seem straightforward on the surface but there's always complexity underneath 
and the writing style can be a bit challenging. Um, Elliot doesn't always have access to the words that he wants, so he'll describe things in unusual ways. He doesn't use punctuation other than full stops, often at the end of very long sentences, so you do mm. have to work a bit. It feels fitting that Elliot has to work so hard to convey his ideas, the reader kind of owes it to him to meet him halfway, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, completely. And and, and so it, it's so, so rewarding when you feel like you're getting into that rhythm of it and you can really relate to Elliot and experience life through his eyes and, and you come to understand, you know, although he can't communicate or react to things in the way that um, uh, the average person could, you, you, you get to know his personality and you get to see how he sees the world and you understand what a lovely human being he is. And it, it's a really nice experience. Yeah. And I... I was thinking as well, like, I know some people can get a bit weird about the idea of writing a book from the perspective of an identity that isn't their own, you know, like we were talking about before, um, the idea of relating trauma and difficult experiences in any other mouth. And yeah. I, I do understand why people do have concerns about like marginal identities being appropriated and all that. But I think in this case, it's actually a really great and special book because it, it gives a voice to a person who might never be able to express themselves, you know. Um, a child with cerebral palsy in the mm. 70s was unlikely to be able to write a book explaining what their life was like. It also uses the experience of someone who's very marginalised um, in terms of their ability to have agency of their own life and communicate their own needs and shapes a story that reflects their unique circumstances into these universal human experiences, you know, of wanting to be loved and understood and to have control over your own life. And so in that way, for me, patience was great because Toby Lick creates a story and a character that demands you reach in and work to understand but at the same time it reaches back out to you and lets you know that you know you don't only better understand someone else but you get to see elements of yourself better understood too and i really like that as well that you've got to put the work in but it's rewarding for you in terms of there's so much joy and warmth in this character to be found but then also you can look inward as well and look at these characteristics that you could possibly find in yourself but what I think is quite significant, especially when you were talking about the five earlier on, how these women in history are given identities, their identities back to them, and they're given a voice in this way, the character in Patience, a boy in the 1970s, like you say, with cerebral palsy, very small minority, someone like that is now given a voice exactly exactly and, and it's not like a charitable pity party either like no. Elliot's great he has so much agency and he's so clever you know as I said you know the enormous crux of the book is him trying to communicate or even get Jim to know that he exists so that mm. he can kind of work with him to hatch a plan and, and I don't want to go too far into how they how he kind of learns to um sorry I've just realized he's not blind and deaf he's blind and mute um, I do think he can still hear, but yeah, so there's um, a sort of, uh, uh, it's really interesting to see the ways in which they have these ingenious little systems to kind of communicate to one another and signal to one another. And you meet a lot of other children in the orphanage who also have these unique ways of conveying their needs. And so it's not about looking at these poor little orphans, you know, with all disabilities, bless them, you know, mustn't life be terrible? It's kind of mm. appreciating that even if you can't communicate in a way that most people would consider normal, um, you know, you can still get things done and, and, and you can still, you will still have a personality and a way of conveying things. And obviously, patience, the title is about the tremendous amount of patience that Elliot has to cultivate as he tries to kind of 
you know, even even just trying to make sure that his wheelchair is parked in the right spot um, for Jim to come along. It mm. is oh, it's it's a little bit frustrating because you're set there like, oh my god. But at the same time, Elliot has to wait so much. It's kind of fitting that the reader should have to wait along with him. I was about to say, does that also signify? the reader have to, having to be patient of getting through the book because you said it can be quite challenging. Yeah, yeah. Especially with the formatting of the book. So it could be that patience is not only relating to Elliot's situation and his circumstance, but also the reader of getting through this book. But like you said before, you are ultimately rewarded. So it's like, be patient. It'll come. Yeah, exactly. And look what happens. Exactly. You kind of end up sort of sat next to Elliot all the time, kind of feeling how irritating it is when, you know, you, you cannot affect... Because obviously you also can't affect anything in the novel. So it is this kind of meta thing where mm. you are even more helpless than he is. Um, but then when things do start to move and um, or even when he has a tiny little victory, like someone will touch his hand in a way that he kind of needed them to to keep things going. You're like, yes! Oh, it's mm. so good. But yeah, I don't know if I'd recommend it for like now if you're having trouble kind of getting into complicated stuff like me at the moment my brain is a big pile mm. of cotton wool um, for obvious reasons <laughs> however it, it was an extremely good book i read this before the world lit on fire um so it, it is definitely one that i would recommend if and when you're feeling up to a little bit of a brain workout well i remember you doing a review um on instagram about it yeah. and i made a note of saying oh i really want to read this and because of how much i love ducks newburyport i really wanted to support um galley beggar press so i actually got it for my birthday and i can oh, currently yeah. see it on my bookshelf just looking <laughs> at me over the corner hey how you doing um so that might be my next read i know you've sort of given that disclaimer of it might not be the best one to read if your brain's a bit frazzled but from what you've described just then and how you've compared it to <laughs> the great escape and little rascals <laughs> and one flew over the cuckoo's nest i'm just i'm really enthralled and i do feel like maybe as frustrating and challenging as it may be i still think the i'll be rewarded in the long run awesome awesome hey hey what a neat segue now we're going to talk about the books we're currently reading oh oh, oh. my god it's like we planned it oh my goodness i know i know <laughs> Okay, so we're now going to talk about books that we're currently reading. And obviously by that, we mean books that we've started to read and not yet finished. And I'm going to kick things off with a book that I started reading on Sunday, which is Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet. And this is a fictionalised story of William Shakespeare's son, Hamnet. And of course, this is the famous Hamlet that was the inspiration for William Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Um, it's not really a spoiler because anyone who knows Shakespeare in history knows this. I think if you're scared about spoilers, you've probably had enough time to look that up by now. So yeah, exactly. It's been about 400 years. <laughs> it has been about 400 years, like hashtag spoilers. Um, but yeah, Hamlet died at quite a young age and the grief of that inspired the play of Hamlet. So this is a fictionalised account of Hamnet. Um, but also, it's not just that. It's also a story about their mother, Agnes, and how she met Hamnet's father, their relationship, the father's relationship with his own parents. There's lots of different strands going on. It's not just the simple story of Hamnet, even though it starts off 
with his perspective it kind of flows back and forth i'm only 60 pages in but so far i'm really really enjoying it there's this element of ethereal almost magical quality to it there's a bit set in a forest where you first meet agnes who is hamlet's mother and she's described as like a a woodland creature a witch she is very much linked with potions remedies animals so it's really interesting because again this is all fiction but there are elements that maggie o'farrell has used with her research going to stratford upon avon what's really interesting though from the 60 pages that i've read so far is that shakespeare is never actually mentioned by name he is referred to as the father the poet the playwright the writer he's never actually given the name shakespeare or even bill or william names just aren't given to him at all which i thought was really interesting yeah completely interesting i mean for my interpretation it'd be if you were to read it and you'd see the name Shakespeare, I think the focus immediately goes onto him. Yeah. Whereas I think immediately Maggie O'Farrell wants to give more focus to Agnes, the wife, and even Hamnet's twin sister, Judith. They're given a lot to do and a lot to say. So I think that's really important to focus on them. And I think by ridding Shakespeare of his name, I think it allows us to look more carefully at the family unit and individual characters rather than almost waiting for Shakespeare to appear on the page. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because otherwise it's like, oh, it's a Shakespeare story, but it's kind of about his like family, um, which I think Maggie O'Farrell probably wouldn't have wanted to do. She would have wanted to kind of, yeah, in- invert that focal point a little bit. So yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and because I love Shakespeare, as we all no, and I mean you've heard me talk about Shakespeare to death. Yeah, yeah, N- not not to plug it, but uh, Kieran on his Instagram, which we'll link in the show notes, is doing an everyday Shakespeare where every day at eleven in the morning ish, um, <laughs> Thank he you. Re- he reads from a a present that I got him, which is everyday Shakespeare. So if you like a bit of Shakespeare, do come along. Oh, stop it! No, go on. One more, <laughs> one more. Um, yeah, I mean I love Shakespeare. I love reading it and. It's one of those things where you meet people and they say, oh, I don't like Shakespeare. I can't get it at all. It's just not for me. And I always say, okay, well, have you seen any Shakespeare being performed? Oh, no, no, no. I just don't get it. I'm like, okay, you don't, you can't say anything unless you've actually seen it be performed because it does come to life. That's the thing. I think a lot of people have decided that they don't like Shakespeare based on knowing almost nothing about his work. Like, so for example, that, um, the sonnet, you know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? People assume it's like, really dribbly and it's like oh the i'll compare you to a summer's day the sun is beautiful and you're beautiful the flowers are delicate and you're <laughs> delicate and it's like no that's not what this poem says at all it goes shall i compare thee to a summer's day no, no. summer is horrible <laughs> yes. it's too hot and 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 it, it's either too hot or it's fucking raining because we're in england <laughs> it never lasts there's insects why how am i gonna have a picnic and it goes like you on the other hand are beautiful yeah. and wonderful and you will stay lovely even when your summer has faded and you're old and disgusting yeah how is that not a fantastic piece of poem and it's funny as well it's really really funny yeah exactly i always love that bit at the end of a sonnet the volto like the 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 twist when it is like however this but yeah the gear change always so good and really satisfying but again i think that in itself cements the point of you say the name shakespeare and it it pulls focus and we immediately tangent into it Yeah. yeah yeah i think that's the point good point Oops. But what I love really is 
because I don't know, I don't know much about Shakespeare's wife. And again, this is fiction, so you know you can't take it as fact. But just having that backstory and that perspective, it just sheds a light more on the unit and how she's feeling because we know reading it that Hamlet's death is coming. So you think, okay, how am I going to prepare for this emotionally? Yeah. And if you, going back to that point of if Shakespeare was mentioned, I feel like people would be like, oh no, but let's, how does Shakespeare feel? Because, you know, this is the emotion that conjures him to write Hamlet, the most famous play of all time. And I yeah. think by doing that, you're forgetting that Agnes birthed him and is his mother. Yeah. And would most likely be dealing a lot more worse off than Jake. I'm not saying, you know, one feels more than the other, but there's always that, like, that maternal pull between mother and child. And funnily enough, that actually leads me into a segment that I actually wanted to read to you. Oh, yes, go for it. So this is a section where Agnes is talking about how she is a young girl and sort of growing up with a new stepmother and a father that doesn't really pay her any attention. And she kind of sees how in the stepmother, the gendered roles of society Mm -hmm. are being performed. And she kind of realises that this is going to be ultimately her place in society. She grows up feeling wrong, out of place, too dark, too tall, too unruly, too opinionated, too silent, too strange. She grows up with the awareness that she's merely tolerated, an irritant, useless, that she doesn't deserve love, that she'll need to change herself substantially, crush herself down if she's to be married. She grows up too, with the memory of what it is to be properly loved, for what you are, not what you ought to be. Oh. Huh? What do you <laughs> think? Uh, emotions. Oh, what are those? <laughs> emotions sad but also very very pertinent yeah and and quite sort of i think something that a lot of us no matter what gender or you are or identify as can kind of identify with it it's funny because you grow up feeling strange and you grow up feeling a bit wrong but that's how everyone feels and it's it's not comparing ourselves to one another it's actually comparing ourselves to the standard we're all trying to fit so yeah very very potent yeah it's the whole signs and signifiers like if we see something and we're so used to it we just assume that's the norm so we kind of think okay that's what we need to be so we'll just do that then because there's not anything else that you've been exposed to yeah it's kind of like the the simulacrum of like shaved legs on women you know there was no original woman who had hairless legs and all the men went we like this this is what we like now and everyone started copying Mm. her it's we're all copying Mm. someone that doesn't exist but we all do it and we all sort of pretend that women don't have hair on their legs it's kind of a yeah i know what you mean it's it's fun all the fun but so far i'm really enjoying this it's the first maggie of book that i've actually read i did and i have got a little list on my goodreads of um her non-fiction book i am i am i am which came out last year or the year before i think is that the one where it's like several brushes with death that she's had yes that's it okay but I remember it coming out and I really liked the idea of it, but I just never got around to reading it. So this is the first book of hers that I've actually read. But so far, I'm really, really enjoying it. Oh, good. And I'm intrigued about how it's going to go. I feel like it's going to get very emotional very quickly. So I shall keep you updated, dear readers and dear Isabel. Awesome. Let me know if the uh, if the hardback is worth picking up because I'm going through a really like, ugh, 
hate hard backstage. But if it's good, I will pick it up. Well, I know the famous saying goes, we should not judge a book by its cover. But this cover is sexy. It's so pretty. It's like, I mean, I'll put it on Instagram so you all can see it because I'm not even going to bother describing it. But it's so cute. But it captures that kind of ethereal, woodland, magical nature of Agnes. Hmm. I think you really get that from the the cover. But yeah, super pretty. Would recommend. 10 out of 10 so far. But Isabel, tell me, what are you currently reading at the moment? So I am reading Gingerbread by Helen Oyeyemi, and she's one of my favourite authors. I've read, I think, three of her books now. One short story collection, two novels. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of funny because we were chatting... The, do you remember we were chatting the other day about how one of our pet peeves on book podcasts or any kind of book reviewing is when someone says, I don't really know how to describe it or it's hard to talk about it because you're there like, you knew you were coming on a podcast and recording. Like, maybe you should have thought about it, like written some notes or something. <laughs> and now I'm sat here like an absolute pleb with the cheek to come on here and say, Gingerbread by Helen Oyeyemi is really hard to describe. <gasps> Gasp! Gasp! You can just burn the witch. But, so the reason I say that is that there's not much in the way of clear plot structure, like no plot, no plot. Um, oh. The characters are all just kind of the same character. Okay. I, I, I mean, always write every, everything I've written of hers is written in a way that if you can't keep up, it will just sort of laugh at you and keep moving. Um, it's, Effectively, Helen Oyemi tends to create things that are sort of warped, strange fairy tale reimaginings. They're not straight up a retelling of a fairy tale. They tend to take the mm. the myths and the kind of um, the nuances of fairy tales and some of the motifs and distill them into something completely different. So this one effectively creates a gingerbread style fairy story set in the modern day. So obviously gingerbread, we have the gingerbread man, um, gingerbread houses, gingerbread... Mm more than any other food stuff aside from maybe apples weirdly has this kind of long running thread in fairy stories um yeah. but it's set in the modern day so there's whatsapp and skype calls and k-pop references and a divisive referendum but there are also mm. dolls that talk and there are unmapped kingdoms and changeling children and although all of these elements are kind of described in the same matter of fact voice that kind of make it your problem if you can't deal with how weird it is um mm. The, the very, very loose plot is that there are three generations of women who live in the UK, um, a grandmother, a mother and a daughter. And the daughter knows that her grandmother and mother come from somewhere else, but she doesn't know where. Um, and, and they never talk about their origins. They never talk about kind of how they came to be living in the UK. And after an incident that I won't spoil, the mother decides to tell the story um, of how the two older generations came from this strange, uncanny fairy tale but not really world to live in the uk um and i'm really enjoying it so far it's it's it, there, there's a lot of kind of weird twinkly elements that you you're kind of gonna enjoy or you're not but it's a story largely about displacement immigration there's a lot about class politics and it's all told through this sort of blithely offhand sort of cruelty that we see in fairy tales and folklore um mm. i'm about 150 pages in and i still feel like i'm finding my feet but I also suspect that's the point and I'll probably never quite feel settled in the novel. It is very strange and shifting. It, um, she, she plays a lot with imagery that doesn't quite match up to what what it's supposed to be signifying. So you kind of have to bridge the gap yourself. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it more when I'm done. There's a lot of themes I've noticed with today's episode of books that you have to do a lot of work and you've got to really sort of put in the time. 
Yeah. Like you don't just sort of read it and read it at face value. You've got to read. Dig- I really like books that make me upset. Yeah, <laughs> I, like, I like my books to make me feel stupid. I like books that make me cry. The end. I like my books how I like my men. Patronising. Oh, <laughs> it sounds really, really interesting. That kind of blend of the cruelty of fairy tales and the kind of mythology behind it with these modern day tropes. Yeah. And it's not just here is a plate of modern day fairy tales there's like a lot more to it than that and a lot more de-scrambling required yeah it's got a sort of slightly max porter-esqueness to it in that it takes the um, although not to be rude to max porter but helen Yemi has been doing this for years but you know he forgives you it's fine there's plenty of room um but yeah it, it does the same thing where the the it's not about just taking a myth and kind of changing some elements and kind of chucking it back out at you again um it takes the essence of it and distills it and reimagines it completely into something new. And and yeah, it, it's very enjoyable. But again, it, it's not a super easy read, not because the text is challenging, but because Oyeyemi writes in a way that is kind of, kind of just for her own benefit. And she will just sort of, it, it's a lot like Margaret Atwood in that she will just drop you into this world and you're expected to kind of find your own way. You know, it, it doesn't, mm. it doesn't lay everything out for you. It's not handy on the old exposition then. Exactly. You're not sat there through three chapters of explaining everything. It's sort of, um, you're kind of dumped in the middle and you have to kind of wander around until you've kind of got the map sorted in your head. Um, but I, I really like it. So, yeah. Kind of like if you go to London for the first time, you just get thrown in at Euston and be like, hit right, on you go. No explanation yeah, time. Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's like when you're trying to like change somewhere on like the central line and you're just wandering through these enormous labyrinths, <laughs> labyrinths of, tu- of tube tunnels and you're like, where am I going? And you try and ask someone for help and they're like, ew, no, we don't do that. Not in London. <laughs> Well, hopefully that's, uh, that's given you guys at home some recommendations for things to add to your own reading list. You know, think the audiobooks to listen to on your state mandated exercise and things to uh, to curl up and read on your your nights in isolation. Don't know about you, Isabel, but I'm off for a nap. I'm knackered. Oh, really? I'm going to go off and uh, prepare to clap for Boris. Mm, yeah, I'm busy. I think I've got a, a hair, some hair to wash and a dog to walk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a dog. I'm going to go and alphabetize my socks. I'm going to go and label all my white socks from my, my favourite to my least favourite. <laughs> You've been listening to Back to the Books with Isabel Flynn and Karen Sanger. If you enjoyed listening, feel free to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform and leave us a rating or review. So listen to you next time. Wait, what? <laughs> Why did I say that? I... <laughs> How did we get it so wrong?